Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis and I'm your host. Today we have Jules Kortenhorst, the CEO of RMI. He is a recognized leader on global energy issues and climate change. Kortenhorst's background spans business, government, entrepreneurial, and nonprofit leadership. Since 1982, RMI has advanced market-based solutions that transform global energy use to secure a clean and prosperous net zero future for all. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Amath. Great. Uh, just to level set, I think it's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in energy? Yes. My interest in energy actually dates back to the start of my career after business school. As I considered what company to join, I noticed, I realized how energy in almost any country is a critical part of the economy. In some countries, like the one that I grew up in, the Netherlands, uh, it was an important part of the resource base and an export product, and therefore an important part of economic growth. And in other countries, it was a critical import, a critical resource requirement. And the realization of this interconnection between energy and the economy made that I decided to, to join uh, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, the oil and gas company, which is now more than, than 36 years ago. And I spent about the first 10 years of my career working in that arena. And then about 15 years ago, after a few diversions in other industry sectors, uh, when I was looking for a way to give back and to make a difference in the world, I concluded that climate change is the biggest issue that we face as humanity. And of course, if you want to address climate change, you have to accelerate the energy transition. So that brought me back to the starting point in my career. And that's really helpful. Thank you so much for providing that overview. So is there a way that you can sort of tie that into the mission of RMI and briefly describe the organization for folks who are not really familiar with the mission of RMI? Yes, at RMI, we wake up every day to accelerate uh, the transition towards a clean, prosperous, uh, zero carbon future for all. And that mission, which we updated uh, a number of years ago, is really deeply rooted in the understanding, the appreciation that in order to address climate change, the planetary emergency of our, of our time, uh, in order to address climate change, we have to move our energy use away from fossil fuels uh, towards that zero carbon future. Um, so our organization, more than 40 years old, has always been an energy um, organization, always been focused on uh, the sustainable future of energy. We have a deep expertise as integrated energy system thinkers. And we have quite a significant capability across all of the sectors of the energy landscape. And for the last decade, since I joined the organization, we have focused our work very much on the impacts that are necessary in order to move our energy system away from fossil fuels. And so whereas historically, a lot of our work was around insights in the energy system, we still do thought leadership, we still drive insights, but most of our work is now on the accelerated deployment at scale of the clean energy solutions that will bring a zero carbon future about. And when you talk about that accelerated deployment at scale and the, the need for this transition to a more sustainable means of energy use and production, 
to really stave off the worst of climate change, what are you seeing globally that gives you hope or that really shows that we are working towards this, as you said, the greatest challenge to our to our species, basically? Let me start by laying out the challenge. And it is truly a daunting challenge. Um, in order to stay below the one and a half degree global warming that scientists have told us is pretty much the threshold that we should aim for, we need to not only make sure that our economy is net zero in emissions, i.e. has no net emissions of greenhouse gases by the middle of this century, but we also need to reduce emissions already by 50% over the course of the next eight years. We need to achieve a net zero system by the middle of the century and have cut emissions in half over the next eight years. That is a daunting challenge. It is a daunting challenge because what that implies is such a massive shift, such a massive changeover in the capital asset base of economies worldwide. We need to replace coal plants and gas plants with wind and solar. We need to replace internal combustion engine cars and trucks with electric vehicles. Uh, we need to, as a result of that, replace gas stations with the infrastructure for electric charging. But we also need to move steel plants from using a massive amount of coal to being based on hydrogen and clean electricity. So across our economy, we need to make massive shifts to the infrastructure that provides us with, with the energy economy. Now, here's the good news. Here's the thing that gives me hope. Much of that changeover in assets is going to happen by the private sector through investments from the private sector. And that is precisely where over the last couple of years, we've seen the biggest change. It is in fact, business leaders, CEOs of financial institutions, people who invest in capital, who have come to realize that the future of their business depends on stabilizing the climate and who have therefore committed to make the changes that are necessary to our uh, capital infrastructure. So I would say that the biggest source of hope is the fact that the private sector has woken up to importance and the urgency of this issue. Now, not all of the private sector yet, not necessarily fast enough yet, not necessarily rigorously enough yet, but we are starting to see a significant shift in the mindset and as a result of that in the leadership from the private sector. And that is a big source of hope for me. And that's really great to hear about this significant shift that the private sector has done to sort of move the ball forward when it comes to this. But we all know that the private sector is one component that is necessary to really get on board when we're thinking about how we can address and mitigate our impact on climate. Uh, one thing I know that the public sector is really sort of dealing with are these bigger geopolitical realities. So we think about the war in Ukraine, and I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint, how has that really impacted energy prices and the speed of this transition? And have you seen sort of the energy mix inclusion of renewable energy? Has that helped to mitigate the impact of the war in Ukraine on energy prices in, in Europe and I guess around the world? It's a very good question, Ahmad, and I thank you for raising it. Let me start by emphasizing that the horrible war in Ukraine and 
and the Russian aggression on Ukraine is a tragedy of the utmost severity. And against that backdrop, when we talk about the implications of uh, the war, we first and foremost have to have the people of Ukraine in our hearts. But there is a silver lining to that horrible crisis. And that is that it has brought back to the attention of decision makers all around the world again, the importance of energy resilience, of energy security, and the volatility of the prices of fossil fuels all around the world. Um, Oil and gas prices are through the roof. They were already increasing before the war broke out, uh, but they are through the roof as a result of the war because, of course, Russia as a massive supplier has been limited in its access to international energy markets. And, And what that has reminded us of is the fact that Even if you are a net exporter like the United States, even if you have a significant domestic energy supply, you are still exposed to the international markets and to prices being set on those international markets. So in the short run, these um, increases in the price of gas and oil, but even of coal, have woken people up to the importance of energy security and energy resilience. And guess what? The sun has not increased its price. The supply of wind globally has not been curtailed. In fact, people are starting to realize that the energy transition is not only beneficial from an environmental perspective, from a perspective of climate change, but also from a perspective of energy resilience and energy security. In the short run, There is some talk about expanding the supply of fossil fuel-based energy. In the short run, um, several countries in Europe are now running coal plants that they had hoped to shut down at a higher level. There's talk about adding import capacity for LNG to the European market because some countries in Europe had somewhat foolishly become so dependent on Russian gas that they need a short-term fix of alternative gas infrastructure. But in the medium term, and certainly in the long term, there is no doubt that this supply shock will accelerate the transition towards a clean and sustainable energy future. First and foremost, because energy efficiency has become more profitable, right? And the most immediate thing that we can all do to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels coming out of Russia is to tinker with our thermostat, to turn down the temperature in winter, but now in summer to leave our air conditioner off a little bit longer and and reduce the amount of energy that we use for heating and cooling in our house. And similarly, we've seen a massive increase in the appeal of EVs, electric cars, because of course, people are starting to realize that with gas at more than $5 a gallon here in the US, even higher in Europe, suddenly the economics of electric vehicles is is much more attractive. So all of that to say that in the medium term and in the long term, we are very convinced that the supply shock coming from the war in Ukraine will accelerate the energy transition and will help us uh, move towards a more resilient and a more sustainable energy future. Even if in the short run, we have to acknowledge that some incremental infrastructure for fossil fuels uh, may emerge 
and that certainly some of the existing capacity will be run a little bit longer. And thank you for for that nuanced understanding of how all of these sort of factors are impacting renewable energy and its uptick as well as how it's also spurring that that component on I think it's really important for people to understand that from the from a government perspective resiliency and not necessarily being dependent on any one thing specifically an import for such a crucial component of your economy is critically important so building up that renewable energy mix into your current energy supply will be really tantamount to national security in the future. And I think it's really a thing that we as citizens should really start to advocate for because without us really advocating for it, our our voices won't be heard. And we really need to make sure that our voices are heard on this issue. Sort of pivoting a bit, when you think about sort of current events and other macro factors outside of sort of what's happening in Ukraine, what other factors do you think will affect the outcome of COP27 that's happening later this year? Well, if COP26 was the COP where the private sector finally massively showed up and started to commit itself towards a low-carbon future, COP27 will have to be the COP where we bring the financial support for that transition to bear, particularly in the global south. Understandably, many leaders um, in the global south are frustrated that developed countries have not always lived up to the commitments that were made in the past about supporting the energy transition and addressing climate change in developing countries. So the COP27 that is being held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, and therefore is to to some extent the African COP, um, is a very pivotal moment to ensure that we are bringing to bear the financial support for the transition in the global south. Now, here's the good news. Whereas in the past, we may have thought about that financial support very much in terms of subsidizing renewable energy in the global south, subsidizing the investments that are necessary. We can now see more and more that when it comes to mitigation, when it comes to reducing emissions, the economics are already pointing in the right direction. Wind and solar are now the lowest cost forms of power generation pretty much anywhere around the world. And countries ranging from South Africa to Indonesia and Vietnam are looking for ways to move away from coal and move towards a renewable energy future. So on the energy side of the equation, we can be optimistic that the mobilization of capital is largely one of de-risking capital flows, of making sure that the private sector can make these investments by reducing risk as a result of public uh, sector finance. It's different in adaptation. And the the capital flows are not just necessary for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, for mitigation, but they are also necessary for adaptation, for learning to live with a warmer climate. And in that area, business models haven't fully crystallized yet. And the role of public finance is, is still significantly more important. So I expect that that will be a big, big subject of discussion uh, during COP27 uh, in Egypt later this year. And when you mentioned COP27 being 
sort of the African COP, I think it's really important for people to understand sort of these macro changes in population and density that's occurring specifically in Africa. So I remember reading earlier this year in the Washington Post, by 2100, a third of the world's population will be in Africa, as well as about 17 of the world's 20 largest cities will be in Africa by 2100. So I think that provides a an idea of both the vastness of the opportunity and the also the intense need for resources, including energy, that the African continent will need. So it is very, very important, I think, for there to be financing in, in place and ways in which these states can actually create renewable energy now, as opposed to sort of going up the rungs of industrialization as the West has done, because it just won't be sustainable for our world. So thinking about that and that many states in the global South are experiencing this growing population now, if you were to advise these states facing the issue of a growing population, the need for industrialization, and the need for energy to accomplish both of those, how would you recommend they incorporate and create opportunities for a clean energy? Happy to answer that. But before I get to that advice, let me be candid and highlight the fact that we in Europe, in the United States, have massively benefited from burning fossil fuels to drive the development of our economy. And even today, the United States as a country uses more energy uh, per capita than almost any other economy in the world. And, and Europe certainly is in the higher segment of that, that utilization as well. So we cannot say that we in the global north have benefited from using energy to build our economies and our standard of living. But now that we are facing an energy crisis, a climate crisis, that suddenly the global south should not have the right to grow their economies. That is a completely unimaginable answer. But once again, here's the good news. We can see a very, very significant opportunity in the global south to develop the low carbon, sustainable and cost effective energy future that will build economies, that will build sustainable cities, that will provide energy access across the global south in a way that is much smarter, but also much more sustainable than the way in which we've developed in Europe or in the US. Now, that is not to say that developing countries should not have the right to develop. That is just to point out that development can be much smarter and more sustainable now that we have uh, low carbon energy technologies that are more cost effective, that are more sustainable, and that really in some ways help these countries leapfrog to the next version of our energy economy in the same way as we've seen in these countries a leap from the traditional telephone information technology infrastructure to a mobile and distributed information technology infrastructure of the future. Once again, I want to emphasize, you can only talk about this within the context of providing energy access and providing the energy that is necessary for economic growth. But if you believe, as we do at RMI, that 
hands down, the future energy system combines sustainability with cost effectiveness. That cost competitiveness will rely on being able to mobilize the wind and the sun um, as the core ingredients of our energy system and to do so in a very efficient, energy efficient mechanism, then we can see that development uh, be significantly more sustainable. Uh, let me take one very specific example. You mentioned cities. The urban sprawl that we've seen emerge here in the United States, more so than almost anywhere else, is also a very unsustainable and energy inefficient way of building cities. So if Africa, for example, will see big cities emerge over the coming decades, how can we help African countries to build those cities in a dense, compact, and thereby sustainable and energy efficient manner? And we've seen some of that already happen in places like China and India. Uh, certainly some of the new developments in Europe are pointing in that direction. But it is critically important that as we think about uh, scaling of the urban infrastructure, just like it is important for the scaling of industrial infrastructure, that everything we build going forward has energy efficiency and energy density and sustainability as an underlying factor. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. I learned a lot from this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have as well. So once again, thank you for joining the ESG Matters podcast. Great. It was a pleasure to be here, Ahmad. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas. Thank you.